Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. A 317 career batting average. In 1924, at the age of 36, he hit a career best 375. And that wasn't as a part time player. In fact, he hit 375 playing in 141 games and 566 at-bats. And he followed that with a 359 batting average in 1925 with 616 at-bats. He played in just two World Series, losing both times. First, in 1916, when his Brooklyn Robins lost to the Boston Braves, and then again in 1920 when Brooklyn lost to the Cleveland Indians. But he hit a combined 283 in those two World Series. One of the best left fielders of his time, Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, the terrific story of one of the game's best from back in the 19-teens and 1920s, Zach Wheat. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome back to Sports Forgotten Heroes. So glad you can join once again. First, again, thanks for being here. You know, sometimes life happens and throws you a curveball, good and bad. Well, the curveball I was thrown as I was getting ready to post this episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes about Zach Wheat, that curveball was a good one. And while I apologize to you for not keeping everything on schedule, I just want to let you all know that Sports Forgotten Heroes isn't going away. Just had to take care of some personal business, and now I am back with episode number 108, Zach Wheat. You know, I had heard of Zach, but I knew very little about his career. I really didn't know how great he was. Well, on today's episode, we are all going to learn how great he was. A career 317 hitter, a terrific outfielder. He played during the dead ball era of the game and towards the beginning of the live ball era. He had power, as his 132 home runs can attest to. He had speed, as his 200 plus stolen bases prove. 
and he was a hitting machine. His average over a 162-game season breaks down like this. Nine home runs a year. Again, he played mostly during the dead ball era. 32 doubles a year. 12 triples a year. 84 RBI. 14 stolen bases and just 38 strikeouts a season. His average OPS was 817. And in 1959, he was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. But there was so much more to Zach's career than just numbers. And joining me on today's episode to talk about Zach is a terrific author and a guy who has accepted my invitation a few other times, Joe Neese. Joe recently released a new biography on Zach simply titled Zach Wheat. Joe has also been here to talk about the great football coach Gus Duray and baseball's Andy Pafko and Burley Grimes. Joe's research and knowledge about the forgotten stars he writes about, it is terrific, and I am sure you will enjoy today's episode. Before we get there, however, just a few quick reminders. Sports Forgotten Heroes is a proud member of the Sports History Network. Check it out at sportshistorynetwork.com. This is where you can go to find several podcasts about sports history. There is a lot of great content there for your listening pleasure. Also, don't forget to follow this podcast, Sports Forgotten Heroes, on Twitter, at SportsFHeroes. Follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram. Look for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page on Facebook as well. I make daily and weekly posts on all of these platforms. More information and stats on the stars of yesteryear, the stars I talk about, and it's where you can see some pretty cool pictures of everyone as well. And of course, Check out sportsfh.com for more information on the forgotten heroes I talk about, more information about my guests, and if you have a question, a comment, or an idea for a forgotten hero that you would like to know more about, just fill out the contact form and I will certainly reach back out to you. Again, that's sportsfh.com. As always, Please give Sports Forgotten Heroes a five-star rating if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. And, of course, as always, thank you for listening. All right, there you go. Let's get straight to it. Zach Wheat and my guest today, author Joe Neese. Joe, welcome back to Sports Forgotten Heroes. I am thrilled that you reached out out to me about Zach Wheat. I am sure based on um, how you approach sports history, Zach has a pretty good background from the area of the country from where you're from. Yes, thanks for thanks for having me back. It's good to speak with you again and talk a little Zach here. So yeah, it was fun to, to do a story. I kind of moved out of my comfort zone of, of western Wisconsin Mm-hmm. and uh, traveled out of state here down to Missouri. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was fun to tell Zach's story. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us about Zach's love for the game from 
basically the time he learned how to walk. I mean, what was it about the game that he loved and how popular was baseball back in his home state? Yeah, so he was born in Missouri, and uh, at a young age they moved to – he was born in Hamilton, Missouri, and then they moved to Kansas City, Missouri, and then over to uh, Kansas, to Kansas City, Kansas. And, you know, baseball was a part of his life forever. And, you know, I think it was just that kind of sweet spot of interest in the game, that turn of the century where it seemed like every street practically had a baseball team representing them, neighborhood streets. Um, And so Zach caught wind of that at a very young age and was going out to the ballpark and watching games before he could play and, you know, wanting to th- just throw the ball, he would just bother anyone he could at, at those local games to throw with him. If he wouldn't, he'd just be throwing rocks. And so, you know, baseball was his main interest from uh, from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Now, from what I understand, he was a good hitter, but his fielding left a little to be desired. So... Early on, what kind of player was he in what position or positions did he play? Sure. So you, you hit it on the head there. So he was a good hitter from the get-go. Um, fielding was his real kind of his, his sore spot. He was a first baseman to start with and didn't do very well. Uh, it wasn't until the minors that he transitioned to the outfield. Uh, he, he was very fast in, in his early years, had great range, had a good arm. But still, even through his professional career, fielding, you know, was still, you know, if you had to, to grade parts of his game, probably the weakest part of his game, in particular, fielding ground balls in the outfield. He was just very never com- not comfortable doing that. You know, a drop to one knee to field a ground ball, which would allow runners to advance on him. And, you know, probably was from the field conditions of the time, which weren't the, the well-manicured ball diamonds that we see today. So how did he go about, did he know that he needed to make an improvement in his fielding in order to pursue a a career as a baseball player? I think he did. And once he moved, you know, he got moved to the outfield in the minors, he worked tirelessly and that, that carried over through it throughout his uh, major league career as well. Uh, would work in the outfield before games and in between games. And, you know, it was something he was always working on. There was, there was points in his career where they held him up as a high standard of fielding too. There were mm-hmm. times where he did very well and, you know, they would test him and he'd, he'd have a lot of assists and stuff like that. So, you know, he was, uh, you know, it, he worked on it. That's for sure. At one, well, like you said, every street, every every club had a ball team, um, and there had to be a time when Zach played for a team and was paid a little bit of money, and said, "Hey, this might be a way to really go about making a living." Can you talk about that at all? The kind of money or um, how semi-pro ball players or players such as Zach before signing a professional contract might have been paid? And at what point would someone say, you know what, I can make a living at this? Yeah, that's a good question. So 
you know, he started at, you know, 17, 18, getting paid, you know, min- minimal money, but still you're getting paid to play ball. And then as he started, you know, finding these different teams, it was the situation where, you know, like a, a mill would uh, sponsor a team. And so he'd work at the mill during the day and then, you know, play for them on the weekends and get paid for that as well. And, and, and finances were, uh, were kind of really needed in the weed household. His dad was, was sick early and kind of became the primary source of income for his mother and two younger brothers. And so, you know, the combination of, you know, day labor and then being paid to play baseball, I think, you know, being paid to play baseball took uh, precedent over the day labor. Mm-hmm. So, he 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 does sign a minor league deal and at one point he goes to play for a ball club called the Mobile Seagulls now i i am a, i'm guessing he's still struggling defensively and the president of the seagulls decides it's time to release him it's just not working out so He's in the process of being released, but at the same time that he's being released, somehow a team in New York, Brooklyn, discovers him and comes calling. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I I think Zach getting even to the minors is kind of an interesting story. Kind of had to beg his way. Yeah, take take us through all of that, all the way up through getting into the minors, struggling in the minors, again, I would say with his fielding, and then being discovered by the Dodgers, and then that episode where he's about to be released, but the Dodgers come calling. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting story. So, as I said, even I think his bat carried him to the minors. You know, he kind of had to beg his way. There was a team, you know, I was looking at baseball reference, and there's mention of him playing six games for Fort Worth in 1907. I, I dug and dug and could not find anything about that. Hmm. Um, and even and Zach even kind of pinpoints uh, his start with Shreveport as his start of the minor leagues in 1908. So he kind of had to beg his way just for a tryout with them. And so he got onto that team, and that's when they kind of transitioned him to the outfield where he had to work on that. And he was still, you know, a decent bat. He, I, I think he kind of – you know, he was a power hitter in his semi-pro days, or at least for that time, he was a power hitter. Uh, but then he kind of, I think, changed to a contact hitter, mm-hmm. and that changed, you know, back when he got to the pros. But you know, see, even, even he had no his his minor league numbers weren't mind blowing by any means. And as you said, he was about to be cut. But so there was a traveling salesman from New York down there, uh, George Solomon, I think his name was. And he was friends with Charles Ebbets, uh, president of the Brooklyn. We'll just call him Dodgers throughout this. You know, they had a bunch of different names at that time, but we'll just call him the Dodgers. Yeah, they were the Robins. They, you know, named after their manager. They were the, what What was it called? The C- Superbas. The Superbas, yeah. Yeah, bridegrooms, all this stuff at the turn of the century. But we'll call them the Dodgers. Just yeah, for, yeah. And so... So there's this traveling salesman who was friends with Ebbets, and so he kind of said, hey, there's this guy in the South that, that uh, you know, there must have been something about his game that drew him to to this salesman. So um, Ebbets, 
dispatch Larry Sutton, who was kind of considered Major League Baseball's first full-time scout. So Sutton goes down there and sees uh, we play and offers him a contract. And at the same time, as you said, the Mobile uh, owner had just sent over this notice to Wheat's Hotel that is going to be cut. And he gets wind that Sutton, you know, Sutton at the same, you know, right after that, Sutton says, hey, we want to purchase Wheat's contract for a substantial amount of money. And so the owner has to, to hurry to the, you know, get and intercept this telegram that he's going to be releasing Wheat. And so luckily he does, and Sutton signs Wheat, and Wheat is called up to the Dodgers in September of 1909. I want to go back before we get to the Dodgers. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to me that somebody sees that Wheat has the potential to possibly make it as a major league baseball player, and yet a minor league owner says hey, he's not good enough and he's going to go and and cut him. Why? Why did Mobile think that he didn't have what it takes to make it? You know, I don't. I don't know what the the reason was. And like I said, his numbers weren't that great. He had suffered. He had like he he had broken his arm had been a bone in his arm had been broken if I remember correctly. And then he'd also had malaria. He, he thinks when he was in the south playing down there that it caused to his his diminished. Uh, performances and output but he, he must have played well on the, the day that Sutton saw him well enough to uh, Sutton saw something in him that he was worth signing hmm. interesting so he does go on to the Dodgers and in that 1909 season and he plays over the you know the final weeks of the season and he bats 304 to earn a spot on the roster for 1910. And he winds up playing every single game that season. So tell us about those games, the final 26 games of that season that he plays, and then how he goes on and asks to get into the lineup for 1910. Yeah, there was something about, you know, Wheat in his early games that really drew an interest from the club. And Brooklyn was really bad at these years, mm-hmm. which I think helped him make it to the, the team, first of all, and offer him an opportunity to play. And so he played well enough. He, played, he was playing on the road a lot, you know, when he first started. And so there was this kind of like real anticipation of him getting back to Washington Park to play where Brooklyn was playing at the time. And he played really well towards the end of the season. And there was talk of there was something in his game that had um, Brooklyn management and other teams as well, seeing that he was going to be a force in the league for years to come. And so, you know, by 1910, as you said, he played 156 games uh, the entire season. That's the only time he played all games in a, in a, a season and uh, kind of went from there. Like I said, the, the really the, the state of Brooklyn – club at that time allowed Zach to kind of find his way and become the player who he was. Mm-hmm. Well, that 1910 season, he does play every game that year, 156, and he has a heck of a year. He hits 284, um, steals 16 bases. Uh, you know, it was not, you, 
a power hitter is not hitting 20 home runs, 25 home runs, 30 home runs back in the day, but he hits two homers, knocks in 55, has 15 triples, wraps 36 doubles. But the other interesting thing about that 1910 season, and you alluded to this earlier, was that he was considered at one point a a power hitter for whatever that means. Then he changes to a contact hitter. He's basically a singles hitter. And in spring, in spring training that year, there were a couple of players, Harry Lumley, Tim Jordan, and John Hummel, who took Zach under their wings and changed his approach at the plate. And Zach never forgot that, and he offered the same kind of mentorship to youngsters along the way uh, throughout his career based on the fact of Lumley, Jordan, and Hummel, what they did for him. So tell us about that relationship with those three ballplayers and how they helped to change Zach's approach at the plate. Yeah, you described it very well. So in spring training, they just, they were, there was, they were practicing one day and he was dinking the ball over, over third, you know, between third and short there, just happy to get it on, you know, into the, into play, I think. And they, uh, Jordan, I think was a, in the biggest power hitter at the time. He held the club record for years. He was the only one who reached double digits and home runs at one point for, you know, decades really. And so, they called him aside and, hey, hey, you got to let's change your uh, your uh, approach at the plate here. And so we went back to that and he kind of went contrary to to, to uh, the, the dead ball era. He never he, he never really choked up very much on his on his bat, uh, hated to bunt and was really swinging from his heels. You know, every every time was a bad ball hitter. Uh, rarely walked, you know, that first year he struck out 80 times or his first full season, 1910 struck out 80 times, most he did ever in his career, but kind of that support from veterans, which weren't, you know, even to this day, I don't know how supportive veterans are if they see someone in the rear view mirror, but mm-hmm. for some reason, those veterans did take him under their wing and uh, changed his approach back to his power hitting days. Mm-hmm. Well, like we said, he had a really good 1910 season. 1911, he does really well again. He has five homers, knocks in 76, steals 21 bases, hits 287, 26 doubles, 13 triples, has a good 1912 season, hits 305. This time he hits. Uh, eight home runs, knocks in 65, steals 16. He's a good ball player. Brooklyn's not the greatest team, and Brooklyn is, you know, shuffling a couple players in and out of the lineup. And there is one guy who you refer to quite often, uh, especially in the early going of Zach's career, and what I mean by early going, after Zach establishes himself, there's another ball player who joins the Dodgers. And it's a guy we all know, but I don't think we talk enough about the kind of ball player this gentleman was on the field. We talk about him mostly as a manager, the old professor, Casey Stengel. Stengel joins the Dodgers in 1912 and becomes a regular 
1913. He's a heck of a ball player. Tell us a little bit about Casey Stengel and, at least in the beginning, the relationship that Wheat and Stengel had. Yeah, so they, they were friends from back in Kansas City. And, you know, Wheat by this, you know, in the early 19, uh, in the early teens was, you know, now one of the fan favorites, getting mail all the time. And so he, he comes back to his hotel room in Brooklyn and there's a letter from uh, Stengel's dad telling him how well Casey's playing in that area there and would Brooklyn be willing to go take a look at him there. And so, uh, you know, Casey's in the minor leagues doing really well. And, you know, Wheat kind of urges Brooklyn to, to take a look at him and they end up signing him. And Stengel, as you said, you know, is his managerial um, resume and, and, and rightfully so overshadows his playing resume, but he was an excellent outfielder, um, excellent hitter fielder um, and really was a leader on Brooklyn club leading up to the world series in 1916. And him and Wheat had a very good relationship, obviously. Mm-hmm. Now, now, yeah, I mean, you take a look at some of the numbers that Stengel put up, I mean, career-wise, he was a 284 hitter, and that's not as a part-time player. 124 games, 126 games, 132 games. Um, again, we're not talking about massive amounts of home runs, but he was a you know he had some power and um, he had some speed too. Um, 19 stolen bases was his you know the, the most he had, but. You know, he led the National League in on-base percentage in 1914 when he hit 316 and had a 404 on-base percentage. He was a good ball player, but he was also somewhat ornery, wouldn't wouldn't you say? I I think so. Yeah, he, he, I think kind of his. You know, I I think the his good-naturedness of later years could be. Kind of, uh, you know, I, don't, I think he was a little salty there in his early career <laughs> with how he, you know, with how he went about things. And, you know, I, he wasn't uh, awestruck, I think, is the big thing. He was very comfortable uh, from the get-go in, in professional baseball. Mm-hmm. Now, he only played for the Dodgers for six years, and they and they traded him. They traded him off to Pittsburgh. Zach you know, played almost his entire career with the exception of his last year with the Dodgers. Why did the Dodgers ultimately unload Casey Stengel? Uh, I, I think he kind of became, his hijinks became a little bit too much for the team, I, th- I think. Um, and he ran, kind of ran himself out of town there. And, you know, he was part of the Grimes trade to Pittsburgh in 1918. And that helped the Dodgers into the 1920 World Series. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. You know, like um, many players of his era, Zach Wheat was always, it seemed like it anyway, negotiating a contract and basically settling for whatever the owner, Charles Ebbets, would give him. But 1917 was different, In 1916, 
Zach helped the Dodgers to the National League pennant. And as you said earlier, the Dodgers were not a good team. They were always a second division team. But finally, in 1916, they put it all together. Now, Zach wanted to be paid. And Brooklyn's other outfielders at the time, Stengel and guy by the name of High Myers, they were holding out. So, Zach held out too. Tell us about Ebbets. First, tell us about the kind of owner he was and how stingy he actually was with the money. And was that just the way all owners were before we get into the holdout? Yeah, I think Ebbets was, he's a surprisingly underrated owner, I think. Um, his influence on the game, he, he did, had, was a part of so many different intricacies of the game at that time and shaping it to really the game it is today. Um, but he didn't like to open his wallet very much. He kind of took pride in, you know, the building that 1916 team on, on minimal, that 1916 world series team on minimal funds. And so, you know, there were times where he paid his, paid his players and, you know, in the federal league, you know, the the short lived federal league was, was biting into major league baseball and taking players away from them. He had to pay them. But as the the federal league folded and, you know, they're back to their old ways, he didn't want to pay his players again. And that's kind of when we started his holdouts and the holdouts were really at the urging of his wife, Daisy. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm who kind of really said, Hey, you got Zach, you got to get paid for what you're worth here. And so that began that holdout, um, the yearly holdouts that, uh, that he had with the club. Mm -hmm. Well, that 1916 season, he helps the Dodgers win the national league pennant. He plays in 149 games. He, he hits 312, leads the national league in slugging percentage at 461, Knocks nine home runs. Again, that's a big number for back then. Knocks in 73, steals 19 bases, 32 doubles, 13 triples, has an on-base percentage of 366, leads the National League in total bases, 262. I mean, he has, at this point in his career, certainly has established himself at the age of 30 as one of the best ball players in the game. And so, like you said, his wife encourages him to sit out and get paid what what he's worth. Stengel sits out. High Myers sits out. So Ebbets decides he better take a road trip and visit Zach and get him to sign. And there was a letter that was written um, that would that helped lead to the resolution to get Zach signed. Tell us about that. Tell us about yeah. this this whole situation because I don't think this would happen today. No, it's pretty, it's a pretty comical situation. So I think Ebbets thought that him showing up at, at Wheat's farm was going to seal the deal. That he you know traveled halfway across the country to show up at Zach's. Uh, dinner table and that wheat would kind of bow down to him and Zach wasn't having any part of it. And so I bet said, okay, well, you know, so we'll, we'll see you. You're, you're not going to be playing next year. And so, um, we, they, 
they kind of, you know, weed kind of shows them to the door and they leave with, without a contract, but then weed receives this, uh, this letter inviting him back with some, uh, a contract. And so, uh, wheat shows up at spring training and Abbott said, Oh, you finally came to your senses and, you know, lack of better words. And wheat's like, no, you had me come down here and shows him this letter. And the Brooklyn, um, journalists who were there, uh, see this and they were the ones who had forged this letter from Ebbets encouraging wheat to come down there. And so, you know, wheat and Ebbets are kind of in a standoff here that, you know, Abbott's I didn't send this wheat saying you did. So they kind of go into a, a side room and discuss it. And they, he emerges with a contract and Abbott's, you know, looks over at the journalists and kind of sa- thinks that, Oh, these are the guys who send that. So in a roundabout way says, whoever sent this, you know, shouldn't have done that. But I think in the end, Abbott's was happy that it all played out the way it did. How important was the game of baseball for a community back then? Because, again, I don't think something like that would happen today. But I think part of the reason it did happen back then was because of how important the game was to the community. Yeah, I think Brooklyn even more so. It was such an insular situation there. They're living you know, players, managers, and fans were all living together in Brooklyn. And so, you know, you couldn't get away from it. And, you know, Ebbets probably was walking down the street and he'd have people coming up to him and questioning his decisions. And so Brooklyn in particular was very important for them. There were always, you know, second, third on the baseball rung, the hierarchy of, of in New York City at that time um, amongst the three major league clubs. And so, and even when the Federal League was there and Brooklyn had a Federal League team, you know, that didn't help the situation either, you know. So I, I think baseball was very important, especially in Brooklyn. And in fact, they the, the the fans really felt like they were a part of that team. They and they felt that the Dodgers were a part of their community. They were buddy buddy. Tell us, you tell a funny story about a time when Zach hitched a ride home with one of his teammates, and some other dude just gets in the car and drives along with him. Yeah, they bo- they both thought that the other one knew knew the guy. And so they're just chatting away, you know, we, I, I think it was Jimmy Johnston. He hopped in a vehicle with him and they're heading home. And this other guy hops in, they thought, you know, Johnston, uh, we thought each other knew this guy and he, he, he pops out at his stop and they kind of look at each other and realize that neither of them knew who this guy was. And so, um, fans were very comfortable. You know, they would, uh, you know, we haven't spoken about Wilbur Robinson yet, uncle Robbie, but, um, you know, he would, he, him and his wife were notorious for arguing with fans on the street about decisions and plays and, you know, Abbott's, um, you know, they'd, they'd often, um, they'd stay after, Abbott's would stay after games and, and, you know, revel in a win or argue with fans about a loss. So, yep, it was a, a nonstop thing. Yeah. So tell us about Robinson, the manager of, the Dodgers at that time, um, I think at least in the beginning, he and Wheat had a pretty good relationship. But as we'll discover, 
years from now, after Ebbets passes away, he and Robinson, Wheat and Robinson, the relationship, the relationship sort of deteriorates, and it's because they both, you know, want to be managers of the team at that point. Sure. Um, sure. But but we'll get to that in a bit. Right now, though, tell us about Robinson and and Wheat and the kind of manager that Robinson was and how he hung on so long. Sure. So I'll, yeah, I'll, so. You know, the tide of the team really start, began in 1913 when Ebbets Field was built. And then in 1914, um, Robinson is signed as manager. Uh, he was a longtime player, uh, a teammate, good friend, and a bench coach for um, John McGraw and the Giants. And he really formed the Giants pitching staff in those years that they went to the World Series but you know they they had some World Series losses, and it was after the 1913 World Series loss to the Philadelphia A's, if I remember correctly. There was a a reunion of the old Baltimore Orioles, and you know McGraw was was angry about the World Series loss and blamed some of it on Robinson, and him and Robinson kind of went toe to toe at this reunion. Robinson ended up dumping it glass of beer over his head McGraw kicked him out of the get-together and uh that was the end of their friendship for for many years and Robinson I think in kind of a spiteful you know at first he wasn't going to be a part of you know he thought he'd kind of retire from the game he'd had enough but then the Brooklyn job opened and he he took it and so he was really instrument Robinson becoming manager was really instrumental in building those Dodgers teams that mm-hmm. went to the World Series in 16 and in 20. Mm-hmm. Worked very well. He was a former catcher, worked very well with pitchers. Um, and you can't say enough about how he was in those early years. And he kind of, you know, the, the lazy thing is kind of see him as this overweight, bumbling fool of a manager. And that's not the case. You know, he kind of lost control of the Dodgers in, in the mid twenties, but these early years, um, his teammate, his or his players loved him. He was a great manager, a player manager, and and you can't say enough about how how well he managed those teams. Mm-hmm. Well, in between that nineteen sixteen and nineteen twenty seasons, um, the Dodgers again sort of struggled, but Wheat was doing his thing. 312 in 1917 and 1918, he led the league in hitting. The only time during his career he actually finished first in hitting, he was close a couple of times. He hit 335 for his career, he hit 317. 1918, 297, comes back in 1920. And what an interesting year. This, of course, the year after the Black Sox scandal. So there's a a lot of haze over baseball at this time. Um, Zach hits three twenty eight, uh, has nine home runs, seventy three ribbies. He's you know a four sixty three slugging percentage. His um, you know his OPS is eight forty eight. He has a heck of a year. But they lose to Cleveland in seven games, and it was a best of nine. And that season also had this oddity to it. 
the Dodgers, again, this wouldn't happen today. This is I, I just found this interesting. I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about it. The Dodgers played a four-game series in Boston against the Braves, but you couldn't play baseball on Sundays in Boston. So the Dodgers took a train home for a Sunday tilt against the Phillies, and then they go back. So it's like two games against the Braves, come home Sunday to play Philly, then go back to Boston to play the Braves. Tell us about that. Now, is that the 26th game, the 26th inning? Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, and so I, I, if I, boy, I'd have to jog my memory here, but I think there was, wasn't there a 20 inning game? There were early? two crazy extra inning games, and the Dodgers, in this season that they win the pennant, play these games, these crazy extra inning games, then get on a train, go home, then get on a train, go back to play more. Yeah, yeah, and the 26 inning game, I, it, I just, and both pitchers for each team pitched the entire game, which is just insane. And yeah, Sunday baseball wasn't allowed at the time in Brooklyn's. And so they had to, to shuttle back and forth to play these games. And I think Grimes threw all 20 of that first one. And then was it Osher or, or Kadoric? Uh, Leon Kadoric threw all 26 versus Osher, the Braves, in that 26 inning affair. And I think that really kind of changed the complexion of both both of those pitchers' careers after that. I don't know how it couldn't if you're. Yeah, it was a it was a 26 inning game. It was the longest game in in the history of baseball at that point. It it uh, it ended in a one one tie, um, and it was played on Saturday. And the two teams were still to finish the four game series on Monday, but baseball was. You weren't allowed to play it in Boston on a Sunday. So, and now since it was legal in Brooklyn, this is the first time. That's right. Yeah. Um, they, they, they get on a midnight train to get back home to play a Sunday game against the Phillies. And Wheat hits a home run in the ninth inning against the Phillies to send that game into extra innings <laughs> and that's a 4 to 3 uh, uh um a 4 to 3 loss in 14 innings to Philly then they got to get back on a midnight train go back to Boston and they play a 19 inning game against Boston they lose that Two to one. I mean, it's a wow. That's a lot of baseball over the course of a couple of days in different cities. What a what a crazy time. Um, yeah, and I think we I think we played it up as that was okay. We were ready to go now. That was uh, yeah, good to go. yeah. Yeah. So that's nineteen twenty. <laughs> one of the interesting things about Zach Wheat's career is. He was a slow starter, and he was also injury prone. Can you talk about that at all? Why such the slow start? Yeah, it, it seemed like he always was injured to start the season, and you know it, it, it never failed. That something sprung up in the spring, and it usually centered around leg injuries, and so those were attributed to he had very small feet. You know, I saw some sources five six or. Uh, size five size six mm. feet 
And he also ran with a pigeon toed style, which he said was helpful, but I don't think that's the case. But, um, so he always had leg injuries and, and, you know, like I said, he was fast early in his career, but you know, by the mid teens, he needed, you know, rub down before and after game would have these big rubber uh, wrappings on his legs just so he could get out there and play. And this, I mean, he played really over a decade with these really bad legs. And so that was, you know, I think attributed to his slow start sometimes was getting back into shape. He didn't do a lot of, as any player did a lot of off season training beyond working on the farm. And so that might've been attributed to, you know, not exercising those baseball muscles until you get to spring training and then you get injured right away. Now for a couple of years, he also had his brother on the team, Mac wheat. And, you know, when you look at Mac's career numbers, they're really not, you know, very impressive. Was Mac, put on the team more as a favor to Zach. Why was Mac on that team? Yeah, I don't, you know, he had some decent years in, in low and lower level ball. And then I, I think that it certainly helped to have your brother be Zach wheat. And so Mac for the most part was a, a backup to the backup catcher, you know, was a bullpen catcher. Um, and he, he played on and off from 15 through 19 with Brooklyn before getting signed by the Phillies in 1920, when he subsequently had his best season of his career with the Phillies in 20. And it was out of the league after the 21 season. Mm-hmm. Hey, Joe, I want to go back to that 1920 season for a moment. Sure. Um, the Dodgers, you know, they make it to the pennant against Cleveland. And this is the year after the White Sox and the Reds in the 1919 World Series. And this is a best of nine. I, I still don't um, – no explanation to me as to why they played a best of nine, change it to best of seven afterwards. But um, going into that 1920 World Series against the Indians, Robinson altered the rotation. There were a lot of weird things that happened. First of all, there were questions about fixing these games. Rube Marquard got caught scalping tickets. Uh, He got into trouble. Stan Kovaleski of the Indians was incredibly hard on the Dodgers. This was a World Series that saw the first ever Grand Slam. A pitcher was the first to homer. Tell us about that 1920 World Series. Yeah, it was just, you know, it was the first year of the the live ball era in hindsight here as Babe Ruth came to New York. Um, At the same time, you know, it was also, you know, they tried to do away with uh, trick pitches, in particular the spitball. That was the year they did that. And so there was all these pitchers that, um, you know, this is going to be your last year of throwing the spitball. And so you, after this, you're going to have to step back and, uh, and not pitch any, you know, pitch it anymore. You have to figure out another pitch, but then, you know, the world series that year, uh, Grimes is the best pitcher for Brooklyn, Kovaleski, the best pitcher for Cleveland, and they're both spitballers. And so, you know, after that, the owners see that and say, okay, we'll allow players to, um, you know, pitchers to, you can each team can allot two pitchers to throw spitballs for the duration of their career. And so that 20 world series is just, you know, all this 
you know, controversy swirling, you know, as you said, the Black Sox scandal, then there's rumors that Brooklyn is going to throw it and Wheat and a few of his teammates get called into the district attorney in Brooklyn to make a statement about how that's not going to happen. And so that's just really an, an interesting World Series and season. And uh, I, I don't think there's been a book written about that 20 season, but I'm sure that one could be, and it'd be a pretty interesting uh, ride. And you talk about the lively ball, right? This is when Ruth gets traded to the Yankees and the game changes. And it really changed for Zach at this point, too. Now, 1920, Zach is 32 years old. And even though he's an injury-prone ball player, even though he gets off to these slow starts, after his 1920 season he starts to put up some of the best numbers of his career, particularly later on at the age of 36 and 37. He puts together, I would say, the best back-to-back years of his career. I mean, this is crazy. 1924 at the age of 36, again, it's a livelier ball. He hits 375. 14 home runs, 97 ribbies, 41 doubles, and 8 triples. And he follows that at the age of 37 when he hits 359 with another 14 homers, 14 triples, 42 doubles, and 103 ribbies. How, what changed? The ball we know is livelier but he's now 36, 37 years old. How does he start to put together these kinds of numbers, these kinds of seasons at what we would say today is an advanced age? Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. And I, I think some of it is that he was playing this way in the dead ball era too, his approach at the plate. So he didn't have to change much in the live ball era. But those those late years, those you know, his age thirty six, thirty seven, when by then his legs were just gone, and he's putting up those kind of extra base numbers, it's it's pretty crazy. I I think I, you know, those were some of the best years. That age thirty seven is one of the best years ever by a thirty seven year old. I think up until the steroid era, we could call it, you know, and uh, I mean just the numbers he put up and. I, I found it interesting that, you know, not only was the ball under scrutiny, but bats were as well. Uh, bats were changing. Larger barrels contributed to to the explosion and uh, batting numbers just as much as the live ball. And so, yeah, wheat, uh, and especially under that uh, 25 season, that was just uh, so tumultuous with the Brooklyn club for him to put up those numbers are pretty crazy. Yeah, I mean, in 24, he has a career-high 212 hits at the age of 36. And then at the age of 37, he tops that with a career-high 221 hits. I mean, it's more than just a livelier ball at this point. There's something going on with Zach where he's seeing it better. Has he changed his approach? I just, I mean, those are 
if you really take everything into consideration, those are his two best years of his career. Yep. Yeah, there, yeah, it is. And, you know, if it wasn't for Rogers Hornsby, he probably would have won a couple more batting titles in those years when Hornsby was putting up his crazy, you know, over 400 numbers. Mm-hmm. And I think he did change his approach a little bit. And he'd always said, I think it, and I remember he became good friends with Ty Cobb later in, in his career and later in life. And then Cobb loved his approach that we kind of had this disdain for pitchers now for some reason that he didn't have early in his career that he took into the batter's box. Mm -hmm. And there's no doubt in my mind um, that had Zach Wheat not been injured as often as he was, you know, especially 1917, he only played 109 games, 1918, 105 games, 1923, 98 games. You just take those three seasons, he would have had more than 3,000 hits. He finished his career with 2,884 hits. He averaged 194 a season. So the one thing that he always wanted to do after he established who he was, Zach Wheat, he wanted to be manager of the Dodgers. And I think Ebbets um, probably saw this as well and was going to ultimately make him manager, but he never got that opportunity. Ebbets passed away. And uh, the co-owner of the team, I believe at that time, was a guy by the name of Stephen McKeever. What happened? How did how did Wheat get passed over for the role of manager? And he was promised it even um, after the, you know, even when Robinson was st- had come back to be a manager of the team, he was still promised it, and. He and Robinson's relationship dissolved, and there was a thing called the Bonehead Club. And no matter what Robinson did, he just couldn't get this team to get behind him in his later years, and he was still able to manage the team. Talk about this whole um, Wheat wanting to be manager and never getting the opportunity and the Bonehead Club and Robinson's failure to get the team over the hump towards the end. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. And you touched on a lot of stuff there. Very, yeah. So he, he, um, you know, so Robinson kind of started to lose control of the club in the early twenties and that kind of took place when Dazzy Vance joined the club and the nightlife started to pick up on the club and led by Vance who you can't be too mad at a guy who, you know, wins the first national league MVP in 1924 Vance a wheat was of course third that year, but, uh, Robinson kind of started to lose control of the club. Um, the wheat had managed the club kind of on and off or, you know, not on and off, I guess, but, you know, in the early twenties, you know, Robinson would return North and wheat would manage the club in spring training for a couple games as they're, they're heading North. And then in 25 Ebbets passes away. Uh, early in the season. And then his predecessor, Steve McKeever, as you said, who was going to, um, who was a big proponent of wheat and the Ebbets, as you said, allude to Ebbets, I think wanted wheat at some point to take over the club. So McKeever is going to take over for Ebbets and he gets 
catches a cold at Ebbett's funeral, then which progresses to pneumonia, <laughs> and he passes away oh. a couple days later. And so there's just this tumultuous uh, behind-the-scenes stuff in, within the Brooklyn organization. And they end up naming Robinson team president, and they don't want Robinson to be manager and president. And so, for years, he'd been he he thought that Wheat wanted his manager's job, and so he begrudgingly names Wheat the interim manager. And much to his chagrin, uh, the players take to Wheat as manager and enjoy it him. Uh, being manager and Robinson is not happy about this because his his real passion is being being manager of the club. And so Brooklyn has struggles a little bit in midsummer under wheat and Robinson sees this as his opportunity to get back in there and manage the club. And so it takes it back from wheat. The kind of the kicker is that there's no formal record of wheat being manager because he wasn't really mm-hmm. named manager. And so there's no, no, no record on the books of wheat having a manager. Yeah, I was going to no. ask you about that. And so, you know, that kind of is the beginning of the end for Wheat and Brooklyn. Robinson, you know, after this, any opportunity he has undermines Wheat, which, of course, leads to his um, release after the 26th season. Mm-hmm. And so as far as Robinson that time, you you talked about the Bonehead Club, and that just, you know, it, it was – Oh, was to uh, kind of hold some accountability to the club. And then the very first game they do it, Robinson screws up the batting order. And uh, he's the first one who makes the, the bonehead club, uh, you know, the, they're going to have some fine system and it dissolves after one game because Robinson's the, the one who makes the first mistake. And so it's just really a, 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 a kind of freewheel in time for Brooklyn and wheat wasn't a part of any of those off field hijinks. He was a very domestic guy. Um, his, you know, family traveled him oftentimes on the road. He didn't partake in that, you know, drinking and carousing after games. And so we kind of became the odd man out on the club. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That 1926 season, you know, with all this going on, he still manages to hit two ninety. Um, and then, and then, like you said, they release him, and he ends up going to play for the Philadelphia Athletics and Connie Mack. Mack and the A's were trying to put together a super team with many of the game's greats, even though, even though they were all, I guess, sort of at the tail end of their careers. You know... That was to be, 1927 was to be Zach's last season. I guess numbers can be somewhat deceiving because he did hit 324, played in 88 games, um, you know, 240-something at bats, 80 hits, um, but he just couldn't cut it. And at the end of the season... The A's released him, um, but he had a great deal of respect for Connie Mack even after being released. Tell us about that 1927 season and playing for Connie Mack. Yeah, I think it was a real breath of fresh air. And, uh, you know, we'd said it was one of the, his favorite season and kind of, you know, what might have been if he had played under Mack in the prime of his career. 
in that 20, that 27 season, Mac went on this huge spending spree, signed, uh, in addition to weed, signed Ty Cobb. He tried to sign Tris Speaker, um, who would come to the A's the following season, and Eddie Collins as well. And they, they were building towards these powerhouse A's teams in the late 20s, early 30s that had all these Hall of Famers on it. Um, Lefty Grove, Al Simmons, Mickey Cochran, uh, Jimmy Fox, just just a crazy team. And so we we loved his time with them, but he just, as you said, couldn't really hack it anymore. His legs were, I mean, mm-hmm. if they were dead in 26, they were buried by 27. And so, um, he, you know, there was, there was no hard feelings. He, he appreciated the opportunity and, you know, tried playing one more year, you know, with the, the Minneapolis Millers, but same thing. Um, you know, by July he was done. Mm-hmm. So, Mm-hmm. You know, Zach played at an odd time, the dead ball era, but he also crossed over, like we said earlier, into into the livelier ball era. You know, at that time, there were so many questions regarding the makeup of the ball, the stitches, what is the center of the ball. Talk about that a little, how the evolution of the ball how it changed the game during Wheat's career and how it changed Wheat's career. Yeah. So, yeah, there, early in his career, they were using one or two balls a game. And so, uh, you know, they'd go into the stands to, to, to retrieve balls that they'd play and it'd just be mushed by the end of the game and, and, and the era when, you know, spitballs and, um, you know, they do darken it with tobacco juice and liquor, you know, just all the stuff that would to the pitcher's advantage. And it was, uh, you know, they went, you know, the composition as well wasn't, you know, all that much to, to make the ball fly out of the park. But in the early 20s, that really changed. And so they were using more balls in a game, which would made the ball livelier. The composition changed as well with rubber centers and then when Babe Ruth started hitting home runs, I think they saw that as a, a positive for the game. And so that changed the composition as well for balls to be flying out of the park. And so that obviously, you know, helped, helps, helped Weed's career and his numbers show that. But I, I don't think he ever really changed his approach to the game. Um, and I think that, you know, his approach, particularly batting, that, uh, you know, he just kept the same approach all those years and just happened to the ball changed and uh, that benefited him. You know, one of the more interesting things to me about Zach's career, he he, he got into the Hall of Fame. Um, you know, he hit 317 for his career. Um, slugging percentage 450 is OPS 817. He had 2,884 hits. Stole 205 bases. Again, you know, was not a 20 home run hitter by any stretch of the imagination. Made himself into a heck of a defensive ball player. I mean, he was a good defensive ball player, uh, especially during the middle part of his career, before his legs got away from him at all. He played... Ty Cobb played at that time, Tris Speaker, Rogers Hornsby, as you said. There was Stengel, Babe Ruth. Why and 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 
particularly Ty Cobb campaigned for Zach to get into the Hall of Fame. Why did Zach get so little support for the Hall of Fame? And then when he was finally voted in by the Veterans Committee, they found out he wasn't even eligible. Ha ha. Um, (laughs) Why did he get so little support for the Hall? You know, I, I, I could never really put my finger on that. Um, you know, you, you talk about his numbers, and I mean, he's still to this day the Brooklyn franchise record or the Dodgers franchise record from their time in Brooklyn to their time in L.A. He still holds numerous batting. Yeah, hits, for games played, total bases, doubles, triples. I mean, he is a legend when it comes to the Brooklyn Dodgers. And he is on so many of their greatest of all time team lists. Um, and again, so little support for the hall. Yeah. I, I don't know if, you know, I, I, and I didn't go too much into this in the book. I didn't want to make speculation, but I just, you know, if there was some sort of blackballing of him with his, his interactions with Brooklyn and, and in particular with Robinson, if Robinson had something to do with that, but you talked about Cobb and Cobb, you know, this was kind of the case with Grime, Burley Grimes as well, who I wrote about previously, that Cobb towards the end of his life made it his mission to get people into the Hall of Fame that he thought deserved to be in there. And Wheat was one of his, you know, they they had this great relationship after the 27 season and, and Cobb and Wheat were just really excellent friends up until the time that both of them, you know, till Cobb passed before Wheat. But Cobb was, you know, part of, you know, Wheat's um, kind of his journey into the Hall of Fame. And as you said, in 57, the Veterans Committee finally let him in and they realized he hadn't been retired for the prerequisite 30 years. And so he had to painfully wait two more years until he was uh, inducted in 59. (laughs) Oh, man. You know, it's amazing um, yeah, look, there's so many ball players, thousands of guys who have played Major League Baseball. Um, but his legend, he's a Hall of Famer, was one of the best players of his time, and his legend is barely remembered. What a shame. How do you classify the career of Zach Wheat? Well, I think there's a number of of reasons why he just is not remembered, and that was – I. You know, when I wrote the Grimes book, just Wheat's name kept coming up, coming up, coming up. And it kind of stuck in my head as I, you know, wrote two books in between and then returned to Zach's story. Um, I the, the guy has to get some recognition. I don't think, you know, he was, he was by far Brooklyn's most popular player of all time up until those teams of the 40s and 50s for Brooklyn. And those kind of wiped out the collective memory of teams before then. And, you know, the, those World Series teams for Brooklyn in the 40s kind of took precedent. And then they moved from Brooklyn. And so he's pushed farther down into Dodgers lore. And I, I'd like to see Los Angeles uh, acknowledge him in some way. You know, I know he didn't have a number per se, but uh, there's teams that have recognized players that didn't have numbers, you know, put his name up on the wall or something. But he's just he's one of those forgotten players that, you know, it happens, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, I was just happy to try to tell his story the best I could. Well, you did. It's really a, a really nice book. 
Zach Wheat, The Life of the Brooklyn Dodgers Hall of Famer by Joe Neese. Joe, I've had you on for several uh, episodes now. Gus DeRay, Burley Grimes, Andy Pafko, Zach Wheat. Really love your work, Joe, and I I really appreciate uh, you spending some time with me and to tell the story of Zach Wheat. Uh, before I let you go, I got to ask, is that it? Or do you have something else on the way? Oh, I, I don't, I don't know how I can't, you know, it's just part of my, my life now is writing. Um, I've, I've got, I've actually got a, a middle grade novel, historical fiction book done. That's baseball centric, you know, it kind of deals with, uh, you know, aspects of the all American girls, professional baseball league that oh, I've that's done. Cool. Um, Sports wise, you know, I've got, you know, another non sports book I've been working on about Seymour Cray, who invented the supercomputer, hmm. kind of one of those Mount Rushmore of the technology age that is forgotten. Um, but then I'm also, I've got quite a bit of work done on a Don Hudson biography. Oh, wow. Um, there's, there's never been a biography written about Hudson. Uh, it's kind of like there not being a, a book, a biography of Babe Ruth. I mean, Don Hudson was, you know, the NFL's first great receiver, uh, kind of the benchmark for receivers for a long time. And so, I, you know, I've, I've got some substantial work and research done on that. So we'll see where it goes with that. Sure. I mean, Hudson was, uh, you know, a heck of a ball player. Uh, I, he, he led the league in touchdown receptions several times for the Packers. I think I think his high mark was 17 touchdown receptions. Um, over 1,200 yards receiving, uh, 1941, 42, somewheres in that range. Yeah. I mean, what a what a ball player! I would love to read that when you when 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 it's done. Yeah, it's an interesting story to tell, and he's kind of one of those guys who he, he very under the radar is find, trying to find information about him. So it's uh. It's one of the things I revel in is trying to dig up information, and so this has definitely been a challenge so far. So I'm I'm enjoying it, and uh, I'd love to tell a story. I'd love to speak with you about it when that comes out, whether it's two years from now or three or four years from now. I'm going to keep slogging away at it because it's uh, his story needs to be told too. Awesome. Well, Joe, thank you so much. Uh, thanks again for uh, taking time out of your day to tell us about uh, another great ball player. And I look forward to speaking with you again. I always enjoy speaking with you, Warren. You're so, uh, you, you do such a good job of questions and uh, your knowledge of, uh, I mean, it's amazing all the stuff that you read and are able to uh, interact with people about. So I do appreciate you giving me this avenue to speak. You got it, Joe, anytime. All right, Warren, thank you. A few other interesting notes about Zach. First, the Hall of Fame. Zach was overlooked by the writers who covered the game for such a long period of time. But finally, in 1957, the Veterans Committee righted a wrong and inducted him. (laughs) However, his 30-year waiting period was not up. So he had to wait another two years. And finally, 1959, Zach Wheat was unanimously elected into the Hall of Fame. After his playing days were over, he farmed a little, operated a bowling alley, and actually 
became a police officer. However, he crashed his car during a chase and was seriously injured. After spending months in the hospital, he opened a hunting and fishing resort in the Ozarks. The 1981 book, The 100 Greatest Baseball Players of All Time by Lawrence Ritter and Donald Honig lists Zach as one of the 100 greatest. He was one heck of a ball player. Once again, I would like to thank my guest today, Joe Neese. Please consider grabbing a copy of his new book about Zach or any of his other terrific books, all available wherever you get your books. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, I welcome back another terrific author, Steve Steinberg, and we are going to talk about two guys who enjoyed extraordinary careers, including one who pitched into his 50s and was still effective, Jack Quinn and Howard Emke. That's next time. For now, thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.